So uh, at my school that I taught at um, for most of my um, car uh, career, um, we had quite a um, defined structure in place. Uh, we had like the workshop model, which was a way of structuring like all of our lessons. So like instructional practice. Yeah, instructional yeah. practice. Yeah, exactly. Like, and it was every lesson. It wasn't just, you know, which sometimes made it quite difficult actually, you know, because there's those lessons that you didn't need that, oh, that full-on explicit that yeah, formula, yeah, yeah. but that's okay. So, but anyway, we made it work. Um, but what was in place for every, um, for all of our lessons is that we had to have um, an anchor chart, like a big poster paper right. with um, our, like our learning intention mm -hmm. for that lesson. Um, and look, sometimes if we had a similar focus for a couple of days, we could actually keep that same anchor chart or refer back to the one from yesterday and start a new one. Mm -hmm. But what I do remember is really struggling with the concept of this learning intention mm -hmm. um, every morning to have up written on the board that was simple enough for the students to understand, but then it was explicit enough that, you know, we were using, um, you know, the right vocabulary mm -hmm. and we were stretching their thinking and they knew exactly what they were th talking about. Mm -hmm. And I just remember this one morning that even though we should plan our learning intentions, obviously, in our planning time, mm -hmm. but sometimes we would, um, and but then there were other times where we couldn't, we actually had, I think, difficulty sitting down two weeks before coming up with this actual yeah. learning intention. And, and, and coming up for one every day for every lesson is really mm -hmm. quite complicated. Yeah. So I remember one morning I rolled into school and I was like... What's my learning intention going to be today? And we had this – I knew what I was going to teach, but I was trying to think about how to word mm -hmm. it. We always had to start with we are learning to. Yeah. So it was always – what is it? We called it WALT. We mm -hmm. are learning to, and then we'd continue on with the spiel. But what I do remember is we had a, um, a coach that um, worked full-time at our school. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, she always seemed to make it that – well, I felt like it always had to be a bit more complicated, a bit oh, more yeah. – yeah. Um, it was always really in depth. Mm -hmm. We're learning to do this because good readers do this, and it oh, was right. it was always just really like a wordy, word, really wordy. Yep. Which so I you know so I I remember just one morning I just couldn't you know quite get it in my head. Mm -hmm. So I remember just strolling into the teacher next door who I worked quite closely with, but I think this was still quite early in the year where you know I just walked in. I was like, "Are you you're teaching this this morning, aren't you?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I was like, "What is like?" what learning intention are you going to have? Because I'd written a few out and it just doesn't work. And, and I think what we needed to do is actually have it up effectively because then once we'd written this beautiful bit of poster paper, then that could be put up around the room. Right. So it wasn't just that single lesson. It was this was something that was going to be kept for a couple of days, mm -hmm. a week, a term. Yeah. And so the two of us, he was like, yeah, I was struggling too. And so the two of us kind of nutted one out. And that kind of, I suppose, for the rest of the year then set up this point where the two of us met up every morning. It was like a ritual. Right. Yep. So we'd, you know, get to school, say, hi, how are you, go get a coffee, mm -hmm. and then we'd nut out these what felt like quite complicated learning intentions. Mm -hmm. Then I'd take a photo of it, and then I'd walk back into my classroom and write my own. <laughs> so I said, for the rest of the year, this was our ritual. Like, yep. it was just, you know, and I've got one that I found actually off my phone from years ago, and, and it's not as, this one's definitely not as complicated. So I don't know if this was before our coach turned around and said, hey, you need to make them more in-depth, but... For example, it was like we are uh, we are learning to identify how good readers critique a text and why. But I remember this and why that would have been put way more complicated. Oh. Like, yeah. So I counted that was actually like fifteen words, mm -hmm. but normally I'd say they're between twenty and thirty. 
and actually take up quite a bit of our poster paper. Mm. Yeah. This whole thing has been a real interest of mine for a while now yep. because I know the idea of having a learning intention mm. visible to the yep. students has really permeated the profession. Mm. You know, everyone talks about it. And it's not something I was familiar with yep. before moving into this role. And I'd say in the last five years is when it's really hit yes. oh, the, yep, the, entire set, the entire profession. Um, and, but, and I've often wondered a few things, and your story reminds me of a few of those. Firstly, how do you generate enough meaningful statements like that? Mm. Um, and, you know, in, in a traditional primary classroom, I'd say, well, you're doing six sort of lessons yes. a day. Yep. So you need six of these unique, meaningful statements yep. every day. Yep. And how much time do you devote to that versus exactly. what you're actually going to teach? Exactly. And then and and again and then and then you'd build on them like say if you did one for reading, mm -hmm. then the next day you could keep similar learning intention, but most likely you would build on it and mm -hmm. say, Well yesterday this is what we did. Yep. Today we're gonna build on mm -hmm. what we did yesterday. Now yep. this is our learning intention yep. for today. And again, I just remember our school just, it had to be, it couldn't just be a simple statement. Mm. It, it, it always felt quite complicated. But again, we spent so much time um, figuring out exactly how we were going to word it yeah. so that it could, so that the students understood, mm -hmm. we understood what we were trying to articulate, but also then, uh, you know, leadership coaches mm. could actually see that, yeah. you know, and again, also that then we'd refer to them around the classroom that it actually made sense, mm. you know, yeah. So it was actually, like, I see the value in it and mm. it was really good for the kids. I said to her, go, oh, do you remember last mm. week when we did this? Go back to that anchor chart. Mm. Um, and I remember even I taught art for a little while and I actually used learning intentions in mm. art every lesson and I think they found that fantastic mm. that they knew exactly what was happening in the yep. art lesson. But I said spending, I said, this is my friend and I, our mm. morning ritual mm. of getting a coffee, going in, nutting out the learning intentions. Yeah. Um, and again, it's not something you could really plan for a week or two no, beforehand. Yeah. It, I, f I felt like it had to be, and also yeah. especially when you think about, um, you know, you have that idea in the morning driving to work about how you could slightly change your lesson mm. or, you know, you find a, um, a story that could work really well. And so mm. you don't always exactly follow your lesson plans mm. exactly like you no, should. No, they no. always change. Should you? you know, or something happened yesterday in the lesson that they go, oh gosh, they really don't get this. Mm. What am I going to do today? So I said, but it got to that ritual every morning, yeah. and it took a while to kind of nut it out. What know? always worries me too is, I know I'm. I think this is a skill of mine. Is when faced with a bit of bureaucracy. Mm. I mean, I understand the intention behind yeah, these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But enacted, they can be a piece of bureaucracy which you're held to account over. Yeah. And I think one of my skills is. Um, skirting over meaningless bureaucracy yes. in a way that looks like it's being done but isn't actually doing it. Yep. Um, and I worry that if I were in a classroom faced with that and that level of accountability from coaches and stuff, I would find a way to get around this concept of learning intention in a way that was easy enough for me and got me over the hurdle but really was pretty meaningless. Yes. I'm pretty confident I could, have, could have done, done that. it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's a really fine balance. I said I saw the the you know, the value in it, but I said, but just trying mm. to also do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Thanks for joining us for the Teacher Learning Network podcast. The Teacher Learning Network is a not-for-profit professional development organisation supported by the Australian Education Union's Victoria branch and the Independent Education Union's Victoria Tasmania branch. We produce books, magazines and apps as well as running face-to-face -face and online professional development for our member schools. I'm Max Grarock and with me is Kate Chinner. Kate, so today, given the story you've told, mm -hmm. it's probably not a huge surprise that we're looking at Hattie again. Yep. Um, this is the second um, discussion we've had about the work of John Hattie. Yep. And this time, rather than focusing on the original research that's in his, and um, what we call the white book, yes. we're instead focusing on the blue book today, which is titled Visible Learning for Teachers. And it's where he's attempted to take the lessons from the white book, which yep. is the raw data research, and convert that into meaningful classroom practice. Okay, yep. Uh, so, yeah, so it's visible learning for teachers. And our big question is what are the reasonable criticisms of Hattie's visible learning for teachers? Yep. Because it's become pretty common for a lot of schools to follow the advice of the blue book. Yes. But I don't think a lot of teachers have the ready vocabulary to confront change that's placed upon them yep. in a reasonable way. Yep. But, but by citing what is you know reasonable criticisms of the work, mm -hmm. um, so in the reading this week, I think we need to address the blue book. Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll give my quick overview. And again, I was really worried when I went through the white one yep. around sort of distilling the information. So again, tell me when I reach a state of confusion yep. here for you. Um, and this is my interpretation of yep. the blue book. It's not an authority sure interpretation. We'll hear our guests, um, yeah, take on you it as take well. Take on it as well. With a bit. So the white book is where it all starts. The yep. white book is a meta-analysis of hundreds of studies, yep. and it shows what makes an impact on student achievement. Yep. If you take the lessons of the white book and you say, okay, these are the top 10 things that impact student achievement, yep. what would be the way I could enact those in the classroom? That's what's written into the blue book. Right. Uh, so the, 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 and the focus becomes this idea of making learning visible yep. because some of the top um, interventions in the white book are about being more explicit about mm. what you're doing with the students, which is why the learning intention is yes. on the white board. Yep. It's, I feel like, and, and this has been one of the biggest shifts in education mm. in my lifetime, is I feel like when I was at school, um, what we were doing in any given lesson was never really clear. Yes. Why we were doing something. We were given activities, we were given worksheets, what the overall... And there was something pretty on the wall to say this is what it should look like. Yeah. You know, at the end of your lesson. Maybe. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah, for? exactly. Yeah. And, and that led to that fairly common question of, you know, why are we doing the, you know, that, yes. that, and that that's, leads to disengagement in the worst sense. So um, being visible about what students are learning, why they're learning is mm -hmm. one of the big themes that runs through the book. Yep. And probably the other biggest theme is feedback. And it's the idea that you get constant feedback about the effectiveness of your teaching from students. Yep. That feedback doesn't only come from seeking explicit feedback, it comes from if you set a test and every student in your class fails the test, the lesson to take from that isn't that you have a group of dumb students. The lesson to take from that is you didn't teach the content all yes. that well. Yes, and what are you actually going to, how are you going to change your plans? Yeah, exactly, so, yeah. Yep. So I'm, I'm torn here because in revisiting the Blue Book, mm -hmm. um, 
what I was reminded of is the sophisticated manner in which Hattie portrays teaching. Yeah. He doesn't try and dumb down teaching to a recipe. What happens is someone reads the blue book and goes, yeah, I want to follow this instructional model in my school. Therefore, we will all write learning intentions on the whiteboard at the start of every lesson. They will be worded with this kind of wording and I will institute this way of making sure everyone does it. At that point, it becomes quite formulaic. And that's, I think, where yep. my biggest criticism of the whole process lies. Yep. Because really, when you go back to the source material here, he explicitly says teaching is a difficult thing to master and you constantly need to monitor how you do it and taking feedback is, is the way to get better. Yep. Um, it's, you know, some of the things he writes about it are really affirming about mm -hmm. the profession. Um, but what's happened over time is doing Hattie has become writing a thing on the Do board. This. Yeah. Yep. This ha and it has to happen every lesson, at the start of every lesson. Yep, exactly. And what's interesting, and I'm sure we'll talk about this soon as well, is that um, really I didn't know much about the white or blue books. Mm. So I was doing all this stuff yep. because... Your school took on this model. This yeah. is the took, school took yeah. on the model, right. This is what we're doing. This mm. is how you have to do it. Mm. Um, yeah, and so then not even having, a, I suppose, a real understanding. Mm. I probably might have had our reading at some point yep. or, you know, but we actually had didn't have the blue book to go, mm. here, this is where all of our research is going. Yeah, and that's a pity, isn't it? I'm yeah, not now, yeah, now I think about it so much, like, differently a couple of years mm. later and I wish I'd had that understanding mm. because then rather than having to follow, I might go, oh, so this is why we're doing this. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you implement it in a really genuine way in a school, you would give teachers the space to do that so they can make decisions about how they might enact it differently in their classroom or differently from year to year with different yes, groups of children. Yes, yes, yes. We should introduce our guest though yep, now. Yeah, we should. Um, we've got with us again Michael Victory, who's our boss, Kate. So yep, we are boss. on our best behaviour. I'm wearing we? my tie today. <laughs> How are you, Michael? Ah, I'm well and really enjoying being back on the TLN podcast series. <laughs> yeah. I've been waiting for my chance to come back and have a chat. <laughs> we were really restrictive the last time we talked about Hattie by um, saying we'll only talk about the white book. So this time we're, we're a little bit less restrictive. We're going to talk more widely about how it's been implemented in classrooms and, and what those outcomes are. So am I off the leash today? You are yes. further off the leash yes. than we let you last time, yes. He's right. still, still got the white book in front of him. Though. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that is. So Michael, do you want to talk about your history of, of you know looking at the work of John Hattie and, and, and your initial uh, reactions to it when you read the work? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, John Hattie's white book, The Visible Learning Research, is almost my favourite education textbook. There's one other that comes up, but I think it was a game changer. I think the research he presented changed teaching, has the potential to change teaching, um, and it has the potential to change what schools are doing. So from my point of view, um, probably the best research that I've ever seen in education in my 30 or 40 years in education. My problem is, is that last week I had a conversation with a teacher, and that teacher said to me, that she works in a Hattie school. Hattie school. And I thought, okay. oh dear, she yep. works in a Hattie school. Yep. And I did think to myself, given that uh, Professor Hattie is also the head of the of ATSL, mm. that we're probably not very far away from an accreditation system for being a visible learning <laughs> yeah. or a Hattie yes. school. You know, how long before you are a four-star Hattie school or a five-star Hattie school? 
And in that is everything that's gone wrong with visible learning, Hattie, and everything associated with it. Mm. So this idea, and I think Kate and you have picked up on it beautifully, is this idea that it's become around the bureaucracy of meeting what are seen to be the requirements of the visible learning system. Mm. And that says a whole lot around the way that we run schools, the way that we think about teachers, and the way that Hattie himself has allowed his work to be hijacked um, by this need for a recipe for teaching. Mm. So the very thing that he says in his research is that this is not a recipe for teaching. He's now gone on to create as a recipe for teaching. Because if you look, it's not just the white book and the blue book. It's now the green book and the orange book and the mm -hmm. red book. So there's visible learning for literacy, visible learning for numeracy, visible learning for coaches. So we've got the very thing that he said that he did not want to create. <laughs> so for me, that's somewhere in the middle of those two things, a brilliant bit of research mm -hmm. and a Hattie accreditation system mm -hmm is really where the discussion needs to be as teachers. And somewhere in the middle of that um, is where we might find reasonable ways to critique the work of Hattie. Because it does come down to that, doesn't it? It's the the brand has become Hattie. Yeah. If, if you were to say, I come from a Hattie school, suddenly there's some cachet associated with that brand. Yeah. Yep. And, and the commodification of that brand is the problem. I, mean, I, th I think that's a... A creeping concern in education is this commodification of ideas and concepts into for-profit checklists or, you know, accreditation models yeah. and things like that. And slowly, some of this stuff is creeping in that direction. Yeah. And look, if you actually look at the latest to the Visible Learning for Numeracy and Visible Learning for Literacy, mm -hmm. it actually does talk in the subtitle of that book about how what you actually have to do to increase literacy results in your school. Right in your classroom. And for me, again, that's where it's just off track. Mm. Because what you have control over is what you do as a teacher. Mm. You don't have control over what the students learn. Mm. You can construct an environment in which you can try and create the learning you want to happen, but you've got no choice over that. The students will learn what the students learn. And so this idea that we can control the learning that the students go through is the very thing that we've got to come to grips with. So Max, I was picking up what you said, and I, where you're a bit younger than I am, but I suspect your education wasn't dissimilar to mine, is that a lot of what we did at school was just being engaged in activities mm -hmm. so that we didn't do other things. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we were given worksheets. Why? Because well, yep. that meant the teacher could control the class for 45 yep. or 50 minutes. What do they mean? Probably not very much. I'm not quite that cynical. Okay, I yep. believe somewhere my teacher had a desired learning goal for the activity, yep. but I equally see that if I knew what that learning goal was mm. while I was doing the activity, I would be more likely to actually learn that thing. Yep. So it's the whole metacognition argument. It's, yep. you know, if, if you're doing something with no idea what the mm. outcome's meant to be versus if you're doing something knowing this is what I'm trying to achieve, you're more likely to achieve it. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But what if you learn something completely different from what the learning intention is? Mm. Is that okay? Absolutely Possibly. not, because we have a curriculum. <laughs> and the curriculum says what we're meant to learn. And, and we can't go down that path of what you just learned and share that with everybody else today. We might be able to do that at some point when it fits in. But, yeah. But, but we, we, we used, to be, able, yeah, so, fact, <laughs> used to be able to run with those kind yep. of things. Oh, great thinking. Could we go along with that where there's no time for that? So let me, give you the, let me give you a, 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 an analogy. So... You know, I had the good fortune to go to Spain a few years ago. 
wanted to go to Barcelona and see La Sagrada Familia, the beautiful cathedral there, Gaudi's Cathedral. So my intention was to go to that cathedral mm -hmm. and look at that cathedral. Mm -hmm. What I didn't know was what was going to happen to me when I walked into that cathedral and had a look at it. Had a look at it. Mm -hmm. The stunning architecture, the use of light, the innovation, the excitement that comes with that. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that that's what I was going to do. Yeah. I knew that this was an iconic building and I knew that I wanted to go there. So my intention was to go to Gaudi's Cathedral and have a look at it. What I learned when I was there, I didn't know I was going to learn that, mm. but it was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Mm. So I would liken that to a little bit of what a teacher is trying to do, yeah. Yeah. is that they create an environment in which the learning can happen for students, mm. but do they control what the learning mm. is? And I would argue you can't, and maybe nor should you. Mm within boundaries. That's interesting because it goes back to where we started with our very first Hattie discussion where I pointed out his opening statements in the first The Light Book are this book is about how to increase measurable student achievement. Yes. School is for other things as well. Yes. But this book is only about that. And all his stuff subsequent, again, remains only about increasing achievement on measurable outcomes, which usually people are measured against the curriculum. Yep. So I'm not defending that as the the, no. the only good measure of schools because I think anyone who's listened to this will notice I talk very expansively about education. Yep. But what, 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 we're, what he's saying here is here is how you get higher test scores, yep. basically. Mm. Um, and it's a real shame that we've now pointed everything almost in education towards this. Yep. When we're now saying the instructional model is based on this thing that gets us higher test scores yep. and Kate, every morning you're going to do the things that get us higher test scores. Yep. Not only have you sort of dropped away some of the time that's available for the other learning, yep. you've also in a sense, precluded the other learning because you've said, okay, when we do this, Michael, you're going to learn about how vowels work in 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 a, in you know in a word. Yeah. Um, so don't learn anything else because yep. this is what we're doing today. Yep. Yeah. So you, you you're not you are increasing your test scores, but you are restricting the freedom of the student to inquire. I was saying the other thing I was thinking about while you were talking as well is that some of those kids that I've taught. You know, particularly even in my grade six year level, like uh, there were, I had some kids in grade two with their learning, and then kids in like year ten or year eleven, and I was making them focus on this thing mm -hmm. for today. Now, some of those kids in who were working in a say grade two level, mm. they weren't ready to talk about critiquing in their mm. reading. Mm. They're like they they were struggling to read three or four little words, mm -hmm. let alone then making them to critique. So it was good in a way because you're sitting them on the floor, they knew what the plan for lesson was, but for them to then go away and try and critique mm. book was huge. Mm. I just needed them to actually read their book, not critique yeah. it. So I, suppose, okay. I suppose what you're saying there, Kate, is to follow a pure Hattie as, you know, mm. as enacted model yeah. doesn't leave a lot of space for differentiation because you've drawn yes. a here is the learning intention for today. Yes. Some of you are above that, some of you are below that, but, but I don't care because we yeah. need to get a higher test yep. score. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And look, I mean, in, in the lesson, I would individualise, like, you know, mm. we had individual conferences yep. and students had their individual learning goals. Mm. So that's where I had to kind of then narrow focus for those kids. But when I think about it is that really it wasn't 
catering for everybody, especially mm. when you're talking quite complicated mm. thought process, like mm. quite complicated, you know, things to teach. So your language, Kat, I wrote it down when you were talking in the opening story, is we are learning today. We we mm. are yes, going to learn too. Yes, and it too. had to always start with we are learning That's too. That's right. And Max, you picked up on the same word that I wrote down as differentiation. Mm. So where does we are learning to mm. fit with the idea of a differentiated approach mm. to teaching and working with the students. How do those two actually mm. sit side by side? Now, I know that differentiation is a difficult word and a difficult thing to implement yep. in a classroom. Absolutely acknowledge that. But what it does is it points to the fact that what we're trying to do is to work with individual students. Each student is an individual human being. Mm. They're not just grade two. No. And so our task as teachers, how do we actually work with that student to get the best outcome and the best result for that student? So as soon as we say, we mm. are learning, we immediately reduce the capacity that we have to actually do that differentiation and treat all those individuals. Yep. So your other option is to have 25 learning intentions. Mm. Well, yeah, and I said it was hard because then they had uh, yeah, their individual goals and they might have read a different level of text, which kind of changed yep. things up a little bit. But yeah, it was quite difficult because you're going, right, this lesson I need you to focus on this. However, you've also got your individual learning goal as well. So yeah, but then how do you get that balance? And especially for that child who's years behind everybody else mm. that's struggling to read three or four sentences, how do you not overwhelm them or make them feel left and out? So far, we've only talked about the learning goal. How do you, as enacted, I'm using that as shorthand for what, what yeah, happens yeah, in yeah. a mainstream classroom, often also includes um, uh, success criteria. Yes. So you will have done this when you can do this. And again, that may exclude children who are not at the sort of standard level and also those that are working well above it. Um, and then also showing um, uh, bits of work that are you know of the required standard. There's also a standard sort of Hattie concept. And again, are you now showing a bit of work that's well below the work that a high-performing student could do and going, look, this is all you actually have to do. Don't, don't, don't yes. bust your guts. Yes. Just get this just get done this like done. this. Because that's the message I would have got yeah. as a student. I'm really good at just doing what I need to do. Yes, make it look pretty and just yes, we know do that. what you need yeah. to do. <laughs> I, no. did, I did feel bad telling that story before in front of my boss. Yeah, but just, just make sure that, yeah, you're doing, yeah, exactly yeah. what's expected. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there was children that I had who were working higher above, mm. and again, they pushed themselves by reading deeper text, mm. but I'm sure a lot of them went, if I just have to, yeah. you know, write a paragraph mm. about what I just thought about mm. them, easy. Mm. I'm going out to recess. Yeah. Look, uh, <laughs> I went to school in the country, and the cultures at the schools I went to was very much a do not try and hold yourself above the other kids. Mm -hmm. So it would encourage most students at that kind of school with that kind of culture to go, okay, that's what I'm aiming for and if I do better than that, I'm going to look like a tryhard. So I won't. Yep. I had um, the good fortune again to be at a conference last year it was the Australian Association for Research and Education. Mm -hmm. There was a presentation from a group of, um, I'll call them Hattie disciples from mm -hmm. University of Melbourne and they're talking about how they use technology now to implement the Hattie model. Mm -hmm. So as a teacher you walk into a classroom with an earpiece in mm -hmm. um, and in a separate room with a view of your classroom either through a two-way window or through a camera you have your coach who watches your lesson. Mm -hmm. 
And what talks into your ear. And talks into your ear. Like a James Bond film. Like a James Bond film when you detour away from the structure of the lesson, which has been deemed to most likely Mm -hmm. get the outcome that you Mm -hmm. want to get with the students. So, again, for me, what we're seeing is the direction of the research being taken into the recipe Mm. and what's happening in this. And this, for me, is the real concern with where this is being taken, and it's a broader discussion about education. Where's the autonomy for Mm. me as a teacher Mm. to make decisions about the students that I'm engaging Mm. and interacting with? So, and again, this comes back to your reasonable criticism of Hattie. One of the things Hattie talks about is where is the student now Mm. and where am I going? Yep. And that's that's the important part of feedback. As teachers, we need to say, well, Kate, this is where you are now. This is where we want you to be. Yep. But what we're actually doing is we're actually creating a recipe for all of the students in that classroom to follow the same path. Mm. And what it does is it takes away my ability as the teacher to say, well, Kate, I think this is where you've come from. I think this is where you are now. Yep. And I think this is where you're going. Mm-hmm. And for anybody that's you know done their research, you'll find echoes in there of John Dewey's theory. So clearly that's mm-hmm. someone that I've read widely and has influenced my thinking. This idea of continuity, past experience, current experience, and future experience. So those three things are really important. So what's happening when we only say this is the learning intention, we're actually forgetting about the past experience of that particular student. Mm-hmm. And we're not even really focused on the current experience in the way that, Max, I think that you were talking about, which is really important, which is what are we doing here and now? What we're worried about is the success criteria at the end, the achievement at the end. And we're actually not engaging in the experience of the student in the classroom at that moment. And I'll I'll come back to Max, I know because you're an early childhood teacher. And what I've learned about early childhood, and again, anybody that listened to the previous podcast, this almost echoes that conversation. If you're an early childhood teacher, my understanding is is that you're looking at what the student is doing and then you're engaging with the activity the student is doing in order to get them to the next step. Mm. But there's no big bit of whiteboard, no big statement on the whiteboard saying, we are all going to get to here, aren't we children? So you're engaging on an individual basis. Mm. For me, that's as close as we get to the concept of teaching that where is this student now, where am I going to take this student to, and trusting the judgment of the teacher, A, that they can see that process, but also that they know a reasonable end goal for that student to be. Now, that means that we actually have to trust the teachers that we have in our classrooms, in our schools, and that for me is really important. And I think that's my learning about from early childhood about why the recipe-driven approach just does not work. Now, I understand that four-year-olds are different to 14-year-olds. Mm. If you've got 25 of them in a classroom mm. on a ratty, northerly wind afternoon, oh, that's pretty tough. Wind, yep. But the reality is is that if we start with the premise that unless we've got a recipe that we can structure it around and control it, if that's where we start, mm. it's all downhill from there. Yep. If we start with the concept of how do I get in touch with those kids, even if there's 25 of them, even if it's exhausting and tiring, then... If we give that up, then we give up our autonomy as teachers. We give up our independence as teachers. We give up any chance of actually being valued as a profession. If we simply say, well, give me the mm. recipe. Mm. Because artificial intelligence, robots, you know, people who are not trained as teachers, just being given a recipe book can follow it. Why not? You know, That's what we give up if we say, give me the recipe, not give me the student. Can I raise one more thing that worries me a little bit around the way Hattie's used um, in the classroom is that, um, again, I'm, 
the white book, I'm not going to the core of of trying to contradict it. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll say Agreed. the research as it is there is robust enough that I ought to agree with it. The point I want to make is those are a lot of studies meta-analyzed good work. If you then extract out parts of them and say, okay, this is good classroom practice, now go away and do it, um, there's not yet a substantial body of research upon that set of classroom practices when combined to absolutely prove that that is the best way. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's sound because it's based on some pretty good data, but it's not conclusive. I don't. I, I wouldn't yet say that is definitely the best way of achieving outcome of test scores. Because remember, that's all we're talking about here. Yeah. I, I I would say you know that that's yet to be properly, and I'm sure it's underway at the moment, but that's yet to be properly researched. Yeah. And um, and can I pick up something? And this is a challenge for your uh, podcast listeners. Is that I'm just picking up what you said about the test scores. I actually did a little exercise um, a few weeks ago when I was writing uh, an article where I actually tried to find what was the achievement measure that Hattie used oh, in this yeah, research. Oh, yeah, that's complex, isn't so, it? So, now, I, I get the um, the chart. I forgot the name of it now. He's, uh, his graph. Mm. Um, but when you actually look at it, it's hard to find what is the measure mm. of achievement which has fed into his graph. Mm. Someone find the name of his graph quick, or I embarrass myself. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Everyone sure out there. I ever knew. <laughs> yeah. um, so you actually, I can't find in his white book. Mm. So if the podcasters out there can find it, please email Max and he'll let me know. Um, but I actually can't find what is the test mm. by which he's measuring yeah. that achievement. So there's a bit of a but challenge for everyone I out there. I did read something about that yeah. in preparation for today. And the, the claim they're making there is that, yeah, it's... It's complicated. It's not a one test measure because yep. it's based on meta-analysis. Yeah. But they believed it was robust enough to let stand. Although you can pick around the yep. edges of it, yep. that that is relatively robust as you're going to get. Yep. So he's a, he's a fixed size graph. That's the name yep. of it. Um, I've got no problem with that. I don't mm. know enough about statistics yep. to dispute that. But yep. I'm picking up on what you're saying, which is he has now implemented or allowed to be constructed in his name, a model for teaching. Yep. But we actually don't know what is the research that, that for, on which that model is trying to be more effective than any other model of teaching. Mm. So what what is the test score that we're going to get the improvement on mm -hmm. that's is going to allow us to say, yes, that was successful? Yep. That, for me, is not clear. Yeah. Now, somebody might be able to clear that up, and that would be fantastic. I'd really enjoy getting that clarity because, as I said, committed to the research. But what it also reminds me of is that um, my teacher training was, initial teacher training was a long time ago, and we had a fabulous book called Joyce and Will's Models for Teaching, and oh, yeah. it contained all of the models for teaching that existed in what was then the 1980s. And so to anybody from New South Wales listing as a Macquarie Uni graduate, greetings, because you, know, you would have gone through the same thing. But what we were told, and this is the 1980s, so this is 35 years ago, was if you pick the right model at the right time for the right student, then learning will occur. Mm -hmm. If you pick the right model for the right student at the right time, then learning will occur. What a load of nonsense. And here we are 35 years later, it's almost back to the same thing. Well, no, it's not. 
because we're now saying we know the right model for every and student. This is what you, we, need to, you, yeah. you no longer have autonomy to pick your model. I'm going to tell you your model and I'll send a coach around your classroom to make sure you're doing it. Well, that's interesting because what do we do if we're a Mazzano school? Or what do we do if yeah. we're a, you know, a different type of school altogether again? So there's two issues there. One, is Hattie the right model? Mm. But the bigger issue, which you alluded to earlier, is is any model the right model? Mm. You know, is it just the case? Is Hattie better than Mazzano or any other model we might choose? And mm. I think the problem is the question. Yeah. The problem is the question. What I think is right about models and any sort of structure um, and this goes to the, that sort of debate that's in the world out there about agency versus structure, people versus systems, um, is if you come into teaching as a graduate with limited agency as a teacher, then a structure has value as you build your agency. And by agency, I mean your skills, your knowledge, yeah. your capabilities. So a structure is very helpful. So I don't have any problem with that. And at different times during your career, you know, you go through cycles and sometimes you're just not there, so a structure is fabulous. But if you're a teacher with great agency, great skills, great knowledge, so if you're in the current parlance an expert teacher and somebody gives you a book like that and says, follow this, mm. well, you'd just be out of that school in a hurry. You'd just be throwing the book in the principal's face and say, bugger off. You know, I've spent my time building my skills to become somebody who can engage with students and get the best out of those students, and you're telling me to go and read a 345-page book with a blue cover because it'll make me a better teacher. Well, go oh, away. Actually, don't you don't even need to read it. You just need to do what. Yeah, yeah. What okay. You are. Yeah, yeah. So you, so just, you do what I interpret yes, as yes, the this model is what's of teaching. Good. You just yeah, yeah, go yeah. do it. This is what you need to do. Don't ask why, but just do it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so for me, that's where it comes to it. It's like, um, yep, structure's good where agency is limited. Yep. But again. If as a principal of a school you need to implement a structure, what you're saying is that you don't have the capacity to develop your teachers so that they do have the skills and knowledge to make independent autonomous decisions. So for me, there's a criticism model if you want one. It's a cop out on the part of principals who say, I actually don't know how to develop my teachers, so here's a recipe, go and do that. Now, principals, if that's what you're doing, rethink, challenge yourself, and how about working on your skills to develop your teachers outside of a recipe? I really like that you sort of drew that idea, Michael, that you know I'm an ongoing teacher and this is a new structure being imposed on me because that's where I wanted us to be in this discussion. I wanted to say if you're in that position and you want to have the discussion with the principal or whoever's trying to impose a structure onto you yeah. and, and, it, and it's drawn, drawn on the Hattie stuff, what is a reasonable... Uh, criticism that you might want to make when when you when you're raising that, Kate. What would you say if that were to happen to you today, and you wanted to have that discussion with your principal? What would be the the given our discussion? What would be a reasonable criticism to make of the work as it's interpreted of John Hattie? Oh, I'm just trying to think what oh, what. So you just in a discussion with say your prince? Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying you're you're a teacher who's got a fair bit of gumption, mm. who's yep. willing to go up and say, look. These are my concerns about what you're proposing. Yep. What would be a reasonable thing to say? Because, I mean, it's in those situations, it's quite easy to mm. fly off the hand. Oh, of course. <laughs> see, look, I can see value in mm. what I have done in the past, mm. like, you know, and how I've taught. And I can see that, you know, learning intentions, you know, can be utilised well. But I think just that every lesson, mm. you need to follow this structure. You need to have the learning intention up on the board. It needs to be really thoughtful, mm. really. Yeah, where there's some lessons that... 
I don't think can run by mm. that. So I think that's the one thing is that, yes, these are some great things that you mm. can use in your teaching, but not every lesson every day for a whole year, I think. I think, yeah, said like Michael said, I think you need to give us a bit of flexibility to, you know, I mean, even like, you know, I've, I've taken kids out to the garden to go mm. and learn maths. And so you're bringing them in inside. Okay, so today what we're going to do is go out to the garden and learn this and this and this, and then you take them out to the garden. But what a but you know, in a way you're tuning them in, but in a way there's that five or ten minutes gone of introducing it and out they go. So yeah, I think it's just that actual the rigidity. Yeah, not giving yes. us the and flexibility. Don't you dare learn anything about photosynthesis or about plants or anything like that yep. when you're doing maths in the garden. Yeah. Don't you but, dare learn anything about I, biology while you're out there. Yep. Just learn my learning intention. I remember one day, particularly this boy who you know had a few difficulties in his learning and and had a few interesting behaviours as well, interesting family. But, you know, um, anyway, I remember one day we were sitting in, it was a reading lesson and I think the coach actually was watching me um, teach and make sure, you know, mm -hmm. that and giving me feedback on how I taught. Mm -hmm. But this one day, um, uh, this boy, we were reading some books from around the places and, and for some, I can't remember exactly what we were reading and how it came up. But he turns to me, and this is in front of, this is grade six, in front of all of his peers and quite a few that were quite switched on. He goes to me, where do the Africans live, right? He had no concept that Africa was a continent with mm. made up a whole lot of countries mm. that one, you know, that obviously there's people that live in Africa, which is said is a whole lot of countries, but also that the people that are from those countries could live here or could live anywhere else. But he literally said, where do the Africans live? Mm. So at that moment, I think I actually did. I stopped my lesson. I went and then flipped it to a geography lesson, which I shouldn't have, shouldn't have done. <laughs> but I thought but you should have done. But that's the teachable moment. That's mm. the moment where I go. That kid's got no idea about outside Australia, and apart from maybe um, oh, he loves some soccer players. I think from um, Spain, and you know, and so apart from that, he had no concept of where the world was. So mm. I went right. I'm stopping this lesson for a second. Google map it. Right, let's, you know, let's show you what. It's like, oh, I had no way. And then we continued on our path. But for me, that was a teachable moment, a life moment mm. for him that he mm. really needed. But I'm sure the coach was sitting mm. there going, what are you doing that for? Mm. And maybe that was a conversation to have with him later. But that's <laughs> such a 1984 thing is the big brother watching you. You said the coach was watching every, you. Every, at least once a fortnight. Um, at least, yeah, would come in and watch and give us feedback and, and also would jump in if I wasn't saying the right thing or doing the right thing. How often did you watch the coach teach? Um, early days, um, like we're talking back when we had coaches back oh, 2005, 2006, we watched them more so because the whole workshop model structure, we would watch them regularly and then we would teach. Like there was a series of I'll watch you, um, let's work together and then, you know, um, but this one, I tried, there's a few times actually because there was a, a, a concept I was struggling with uh, teaching, I can't, it was reading or writing and that morning she came in to me, she's like, right, what are you teaching today? And I was like, oh, this and, and I said, actually, I'm really struggling with it. Is there any chance, actually, I think I've seen it before, is there any chance we can do this together? And it was, it was quite a bit of frowned upon that, so we ended up running it together. It didn't go overly well because I was kind of, I, even though I tried to think about how it could work properly. But yeah, so... Not very often. It was, was more, yeah. Sorry, that was a sidetrack there. I diverted from Returning to the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think my major um, 
complaint would be the same as yours, Kate, that enacted in every single lesson across every single week, there's a rigidity that restricts the expansionist nature of the learning. You know, children are no longer able to, you know, explore something else that's not the strictly defined learning intention. Yep. And that terrifies me. I, I hate that idea. Mm. Yep. No, I, and, yeah, I don't know, I think it just, it takes the fun out of it a mm. little bit. Like it's, yeah. you know, a lot. and also, yeah, and also uh, now there's so many interruptions in a week mm. that your lessons never run, you never get the amount of lessons done the way you want to. There's always something that pops up or comes up and, but, or for example, say if they did great work yesterday and this was, you know, but finishing off, like they, they're actually finishing off the task or continuing mm. on with their writing, it still had to be today we are continuing mm. on with, or today we are um, uh, working out how to edit or revise our work and here's a strategy that I'm going to teach you. Right, continue on with your work yesterday from yesterday. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> it, even that, like not going, hey, guys, you know where you're up to yesterday. We had some great stories. Off you go. It's, we had to make it into a real, like, lesson. And so, Michael, if you were a teacher in a school that was about to um, <laughs> Has he got a have few this things or just one thing? instructional model placed upon <laughs> you, what would be the uh, reasonable criticism that you'd explore with your principal? Yeah. Can I answer that in two indirect ways? I can't stop you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first thing I would say is that I think as teachers what we should do is not talk about learning intentions, but we should talk about teaching intentions. Mm -hmm. So when I go into a classroom, this is what I plan to teach. So uh, my 17-year-old at the moment, is uh, they're studying uh, Frankenstein, the Mary Shelley book. Mm -hmm. So I might go in as an English teacher in that classroom and say, right, my intention today is to talk about what this Frankenstein teaches us about the meaning of being human. Mm -hmm. So what do we learn from this idea of the construction of a human about being human? So that's what I want to talk about. And then what I do is I leave those students free to learn what it is they want to take from that. Mm. Certainly I want them to get a great result in their VCE score and get their ATAR and have the success they want. But what I do is I leave open for them to learn what it is. So one of my great heroes of education at the moment, Gert Biester, talks about that as, as the moment of emancipational freedom. Mm. We have to leave our students free to learn what they choose to learn. Mm. But what I can do, so the criticism, is that all I can do is to talk about what I intend to teach today, and that might be a learning intention for some students, but not for all of them. But the second thing, it's more about, I want to twist the question a little bit, not more uh, what is a reasonable criticism, mm -hmm. but when is a reasonable time to stop using a structured approach? Mm -hmm. And this comes back to my idea of the graduate teacher. As a graduate teacher, I think I would have really benefited from a structure, yeah. and that would have been fine. But the time to stop using that is when two teachers meet for coffee before the start of a day, and yes, Kate, this is you, before the start of a day in order to construct the language of what they're going to do in order to meet the bureaucratic requirement of having a learning intention. And I would say then to my principal, whoever it was in the school that was telling me I must do this, I am spending more time meeting the bureaucratic requirements of this system and talking about the language that I use in order to tick the boxes than I am talking about the students that I'm teaching with. And at the point where that tips into, you have to spend time working out how to write 
something in a particular way, you no longer need that structure. Ditch the structure and go back to having a coffee with your colleague and saying, look, I'm really struggling with Max at the moment. I don't think I'm connecting with him. Have you had any success with him? What are the things that you think I could try yep. in order to connect with Max's experience? And that's a conversation we should be having as teachers rather than the blue book or the red book or the orange book or the green mm. book. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you found the discussion useful and be able to take something away from your classroom. If your school is a member of the Teacher Learning Network and you'd like a certificate to acknowledge the time you've spent listening to this podcast for proof of your professional learning, just go to our website, www.tln.org.au forward slash podcast. If your school is not a member of the TLN, you can find out more about joining us at www.tln.org.au forward slash join. The Teacher Learning Network podcast is hosted by Kate Chinner and Max Grarock. The Teacher Learning Network is the not-for-profit teacher professional development organisation that's supported by the Australian Education Union's Victorian branch and the Independent Education Union's Victoria, Tasmania branch. We produce online and face-to-face professional learning opportunities for educators in schools and early childhood services. We also publish books, magazines and apps to support the education community. To view a calendar of our courses and find out more about our resources, please visit our website at www.tln.org.au. The Teacher Learning Network is a membership-based organisation. Schools and early childhood services join the TLN to support the individual professional learning needs of their staff. Once members, all staff can participate in their professional learning at no extra charge. To find out more about joining, visit www.tln.org.au forward slash join. If your school is a member of the Teacher Learning Network, you can produce a certificate recording your engagement with this podcast. These are great pieces of evidence for your professional learning records. You can generate a certificate by visiting www.tln.org.au forward slash podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback or input about the issues we've discussed today or any other suggestions for future podcasts. Please email any feedback or suggestions through to me via max at tln.org.au. If you like this podcast, please rate or review it in your podcast app. It helps us reach more teachers. Have a great day and you'll hear from us again in a couple of weeks.